Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 34 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. I'm glad you decided to spend some time with us and let me regale you with what should be another awesome trip into the wildlands. On today's episode, I thought it would be fun to count down for you another of my personal top 10 lists. I've had some good fun putting these lists together, and I've been dinking around with this particular topic for a little while now. Now, if you're new to the show, first allow me to extend a warm welcome. Dee Dee, our canine expedition leader, will be around shortly to administer the obligatory leg sniffing, so be sure to remain still. Afterwards, of course, don't be afraid to give our boy a good scratch behind the ears. But secondly, I wanted to just throw out there that our top 10 countdown episodes are typically more focused episodes, so I tend to leave out any sort of peek behind the scenes kind of talk at the beginning of the show. We're just going to get right into this thing straight away, so once you're situated, grab a seat by the campfire and settle in. We are going to have a good time today. So for today's top 10 list, I thought it would be fun to get a little personal. Let's talk about guilty pleasures. We all have them, right? Those things in our lives that we can't help but enjoy and love, even though we, I don't know, maybe probably shouldn't. Or at least it seems like we probably shouldn't. Guilty pleasures are those things that we can't help but enjoy, but know they probably aren't the best things for us. Or maybe they just aren't as good as we think they are. And while there's plenty of these sorts of things in our regular daily lives, I'm looking at you, sea salted caramel candies that I love so much. Oh my god. I'm today going to be talking specifically about video games. Now, one of the coolest things about gaming, whether you play modern games, retro games, or a mixture of both, is that there are tons and tons of options out there and game types that tailor to all sorts of specific tastes and preferences. There's specific genres of games games with specific gameplay styles and mechanics, or even games that have a particular visual style. But I think we could all agree that there are just some games out there that are just kind of bad. And that, too, can mean a lot of things. There are bad games out there where the story doesn't make a lick of sense. There's bad games out there that have really clunky controls. Games that stray too far from an established formula. Games that take too many liberties with an already established set of source material. Games that could have been something amazing, but they turned out to be an utter disappointment. But despite it all, some of these games can still be games that bring us some semblance of joy. We know that they are not the best games, really, but we can't help but have a soft spot in our hearts for them. But our love for these kinds of games sometimes has to be kept secret. Because others just won't understand. Others are quick to judge and make fun. We don't want to be embarrassed and have to try to explain ourselves. And maybe that's because we just can't explain ourselves and explain in words our love for these games sometimes. Well, my friends, I think it's time we talk about them. The video games that we love to play, even if we probably shouldn't. 
Today on the Retro Wildlands, I'm going to put myself out there and count down for you all my top 10 guilty pleasure video games. Now before we begin, my usual disclaimer when it comes to lists. This is my personal list and it will more than likely be different than yours. But that being said, if there's a game you think I should have had on my list that I didn't, that's okay. We all have our own top 10 guilty pleasure games, and honestly, I'd love to hear what some of yours are. I'm hoping today's episode will get some of you to feel a little bit more confident about standing behind your guilty pleasure games, so if you want to shout them out to the world, you can do that over on our social media pages. Speaking of social media, I put a call out for comments on all of our platforms a bit ago and asked if any of you listening wanted to offer up any of your guilty pleasure games, and I'll shout you out and go over them on the show today. We got a pretty decent pile of comments this week, so I'll be sprinkling those in during the countdown itself, so be sure to stay tuned to hear those. Alright, I think that covers the setup, so let's get into this thing. The time has come for us to be honest with ourselves and come to terms with the fact that there are just some games out there that we really like to play and maybe aren't as good as we think they are. Games that just make us feel good, no matter what the review scores were, what the critical reception was, or how other people feel about them. And I am going to get the ball rolling by talking to you today about my top 10 guilty pleasure video games. might not be the most hardcore gamer out there, and I certainly have some gaping holes in my gaming resume, there's one thing that really drives how I enjoy this hobby of video games. While there are thousands upon thousands of games out there, the main reason I play games is to have fun and enjoy myself. Some of the best video games I've ever played are the ones that do a fantastic job of making me feel good, help me forget about my worldly troubles, or give me an experience that I probably could not get somewhere else. Now, it's not always the big budget AAA games that can do this for me. Sometimes it's the diamond in the rough indie game, or the sequel to a game that maybe didn't stick the landing like people were hoping. It can even be the game that you can see all the developmental cracks in, like bad graphics, poor controls, horrible hit detection, or a game that has a story that's voiced by the world's worst set of voice actors ever, but somehow it still hits the spot just right. Or maybe you just have a personal nostalgic memory attached to a game, and because of that, it can do you no wrong. Whatever the reasons, we all have those games that we love that maybe aren't the greatest games out there, and we just keep finding reasons to go back to them. So after saying all that, and before we get into the list, I just wanted to clear up one more quick thing before we get going. I'd like to think I've done a pretty good job of describing to you what I feel is a guilty pleasure game up to this point, and the criteria behind the choices I'm going to be making today. Spoiler alert, in case anybody is wondering, I am not going to be talking about the more, mature side of gaming pleasures. 
What I mean is, none of the games on my list are off the deep end when it comes to adult content. I'm not going to be talking about dating simulators, hentai games, or other X-rated video games. I can certainly see how those would easily fall into the guilty pleasures category, but these kind of games are not what I'm going to be talking about today, so if that's what you were hoping to hear, my apologies, that is not going to happen. Now, that is not to say I have any issues if someone listening to the show likes to partake in these sorts of video games. The Retro Wildlands are a place where all are welcome and we do not judge around here, so no shade thrown if these type of games are your thing. They're just not my thing, that's all. So, all that said, let's get this show on the road. It's time to start counting down my top 10 Guilty Pleasure Video Games. Number 10 My number 10 guilty pleasure game is NARC on the original Nintendo Entertainment System. NARC is a game that was originally released in arcades, but I got my hands on it when I was pretty young on the OG Nintendo. The whole premise of the game is fairly simple. In this side-scrolling shooter, you play as Max Force, or Hitman, and your objective is to track down and apprehend Mr. Big, the head of an underground drug trafficking ring. While you get more points by apprehending the criminals and scumbags looking to kill you, you're more than likely going to kill more than you capture. While I don't remember much of it since I was so young, apparently there was some harsh criticism for this game, especially by parents due to the game's blood, gun violence, and pretty adult subject matter. And while I can certainly see why this game would ruffle a few feathers, especially back in the late 1980s, it was the gameplay that really hooked me back then, and sometimes it still hooks me nowadays. For me at least, NARC isn't a very easy game. It has a generous amount of that NES tough difficulty, but what really dug its hooks into me was trying to rack up as high a score as possible. You see, when you kill the bad guys, they'll often drop items that you can confiscate, like drugs, weapons, and even money. As you collect these things, they are all added to your score at the end of the level, along with bonuses for arresting bad guys. Enemies in this game will be coming at you constantly, so I would often try to take on hordes and hordes of enemies to collect contraband and arrest who I could before moving on. I would find myself risking a game over the longer I stayed and fought the bad guys just to try and collect a few more things to add to my score and try to make a couple more arrests. Since I was never really good enough to progress very far in this game, this is how I would have fun with it. I used to write my high score on a piece of paper and I chased it obsessively. One of these days I might dedicate a full episode to NARC and really put some solid time into it, because as it sits today, I am not entirely sure if NARC is a good game from a gameplay standpoint. 
The game can get very repetitive, and I personally lose interest about 20 or so minutes in. But it's one of those games that I can't help but pop in from time to time just to see how high of a score I can get, even if it frustrates the hell out of me sometimes. The sheer amount of enemies on screen often means I'm going to get struck no matter what I do, and sometimes I'm just getting bombarded to the point the fun just vanishes. But all of that said, I'm not gonna lie. There is something cool and appealing about this game that just scratches an itch for me. A simpler game from a simpler time where the good guys fight the bad guys, and the only high that really matters to me is chasing after that high score. So that right there was my number 10. Let's check in with some of you listeners who put themselves out there in comment form on our social media pages. Our first listener comment came in on our Instagram page from Unbuckled Cape, the host of the Unbuckled Comics podcast. He chimed in on his guilty pleasure games and said, The Adventures of Batman and Robin on the Sega Genesis. I think it's a good game, but I never hear anyone talk about it. Venom, Spider-Man, Lethal Protector on the Genesis. Maximum Carnage is better, but I owned Lethal Protector. So Batman and Robin is a game that has definitely caught my attention a little bit ago. I've never played it, but it looks really fun, and the game soundtrack sounds pretty awesome from what I remember. For some reason, though, the internet calls this game a run-and-gun, if that gives you any idea of how it plays. It looks really cool, and I'll have to check it out at some point. But as far as Lethal Protector goes, now I could be wrong, but I think you're thinking of Spider-Man and Venom Separation Anxiety. Now I've not played this one, but I remember reading somewhere that this game follows the events of the Lethal Protector comic series. Again, I could be misremembering though. But, all that said, you are right, this game and Maximum Carnage, which I covered on episode 11 of the podcast, by the way, are pretty similar in how they play, and while I wasn't head over heels in love with Maximum Carnage, it was fun to play in some spots, and I do go back to it from time to time. Good stuff, Unbuckled. Thank you so much for writing in. Number 9 Coming in at number 9 is a game that I'm not sure a lot of you know about, or if you do, I'm not sure how many of you have actually played it. I am talking about Siphon Filter, the Omega Strain for the PlayStation 2. Siphon Filter has always been a game franchise that I would love to see rebooted today. It's a series of third-person shooters that I often thought tried to be a combination of Metal Gear Solid and Splinter Cell, with a dash of James Bond thrown in there for good measure. In most of the games in this series, players take control of Gabe Logan. 
After the events of the first three games on the original PlayStation, Gabe has been put in charge of the IPCA, the International Presidential Consulting Agency. When I was younger, I rather enjoyed the Siphon Filter games on the original PlayStation up to that point, so it was a no-brainer that I was going to try out Omega Strain. But when I popped the disc into the PlayStation 2 and started my journey, I was pleasantly surprised to learn what lay ahead for me. In this game, I would not be reprising the role of Gabe this time around, but instead, I would be an agent in the IPCA, and I would get to name that agent and even customize them. Now, in case anyone didn't know, because I don't think I've advertised this before, I am a huge fan of character customization in any video game, and the idea that this game had it blew my mind. Anytime I can project myself into a video game like this or just give my character a custom look, I am immediately intrigued. But more than the character customization options in the Omega Strain, what really grabbed me were the many medals, commendations, and ranks that I could earn that really made me feel like I was rising in the ranks of the IPCA. Different accolades and weapon unlocks were earned by completing certain missions or accomplishing specific feats, and this gave the game some pretty good replay value. More than that, though, it forced me to dabble in and get good at all aspects of this game. So while the game rewarded me for top-level proficiency in a specific gameplay style, getting to a higher rank required me to get out of my comfort zone and do different things. As a gamer, I really appreciated this about the game, and anytime I received a new commendation, I knew that I had truly earned it. The Omega Strain, however, is not the best game out there. When it came out, it was met with mixed reviews. Some would praise the game's attempts at innovation and graphical presentation, but the gameplay itself had the potential to be clunky and very hard to control. I remember it being hard to swap weapons on the fly during firefights, and it would often lead to me getting killed if I wasn't quick on the trigger. And sometimes the game would seemingly throw countless enemies at you, which is awesome if you get your jollies off by shooting things, but it kind of sucks if you just want to progress forward and accomplish the mission. But it's not all bad. One thing the game had going for it is, in order to get all of the game's commendations and rank up the highest, you would have to accomplish some missions while playing with others. And I'm not talking about couch co-op, I'm talking about online broadband connection. Yes, it's hard to think about it for an older PlayStation 2 game, but the Omega Strain had the ability to connect with other players over the internet. But obviously that functionality is long gone now. So because of that, it's impossible to truly complete this game, but that never stopped me. Despite the gameplay shortfalls, the clunky controls, and the often repetitive approach to progression, I couldn't help but want to push my custom agent as far up the ranks as I possibly could. So much so that I discovered a jump glitch that I exploited to allow me to accomplish objectives that I needed other players for. Obviously, there's no online functionality for this game anymore, like I said, and I never had anyone to actually play this game with when I was younger, but that did not stop me from milking everything I could from this game. I don't remember how long it actually took me to get as high up in rank as I could, but I'll never forget how I felt when I got there. Bad controls and enemy spawns aside, 
I enjoyed the hell out of this game, so much that I found a way to break it in order to get more gameplay out of it. The many commendations and medals that I earned in this game are ones that I still wear proudly on my chest, and I can't help but smile any time I think about the journey I took to earn them. So that was my number 9 Guilty Pleasure game. Tyler over on our Facebook page chimed in with his current Guilty Pleasure game and called out Bro Force on the Nintendo Switch. Now this is a game that I am very eager to get into, and I already have it sitting on my own Switch just waiting for me. For those of you who haven't heard of this magnificent game, this is a side-scrolling run-and-gun shooter with an old-school retro art style. But the hook is, you play as one of many different bros, who are all modeled after some notable pop culture action star. Notable bros such as Rambro, Brodel Walker, Brobocop, The Brominator, and more. I think this is going to be a fantastic game, and the presentation alone is enough to seal the deal for me personally. But as far as the gameplay goes, with fully destructible environments and tons and tons of action to be had, this game looks like a pleasure that won't make me feel all that guilty. <laughs> Thanks for interacting with the show, Tyler. I wish you well on your righteous mission in the pursuit of freedom, justice, and liberty. Number 8 My number 8 guilty pleasure game is Silent Hill Homecoming. For those of you that are fans of the Silent Hill series, I think we can all agree that the original three Silent Hills, and maybe Silent Hill 4, are the best games in the entire series. Once Western developers like Climax Studios, Double Helix, and WayForward got their hands on the franchise, the magic, for lack of a better term, started to fade. It seemed like no one could capture the essence that the developers of Team Silent did on the earlier entries into the series, and we got a series of lackluster games that had the Silent Hill name attached to it, and that's probably the only connection that those games had to the earlier experiences. Now, does that mean that later games in the series like Downpour, Book of Memories, Origins, and Homecoming are bad games? I'd like to think that's debatable. But if there's any game in the series that I think we can all agree on isn't a great game as a whole, it's Silent Hill Homecoming. However, I have to admit that I really have a good time when I play this game. The game itself garnered average reviews at best, but if there's anything I think most Silent Hill fans can agree upon, it's that Homecoming has some pretty uninspiring combat, a so-so story, unnecessary dialogue options that add nothing to the experience, and liberties taken with a fan-favorite character that didn't seem to make much narrative sense. 
But all of that said, what makes this game a guilty pleasure for me? It's going to be two things. First, I think the game's presentation is pretty damn good. Environments like Shepherd's Glen are rendered rather well, and I think the music on offer is very atmospheric and pretty dark. Even though some of the character models themselves don't look all that great up close. But secondly, and probably most important to me, is the combat in this game. Now, in the original Silent Hill games, combat was purposefully designed to be unintuitive and secondary to the overall experience. Characters like James Sunderland and Harry Mason were just regular guys and not at all adept at fighting. In Homecoming, however, our main character Alex is a young man in his early 20s and someone who's been part of the military, presumably picking up some combat experience. So while you're in battle in Silent Hill Homecoming, you can perform several types of attacks depending on the type of weapon you have equipped. Light attacks, heavy attacks, and even evasive maneuvers can be used to put down the many monsters blocking your path. And while the combat itself is oftentimes the subject of some pretty heavy criticism since Silent Hill really isn't all about fighting monsters, I rather enjoyed slicing up enemies and performing some well-timed dodges to avoid damage. Personally, I'm always a huge fan of any type of combat that puts any sort of emphasis on evasive maneuvers. I just find it fun, and I cannot deny that I enjoy myself when I'm playing this game. And while I agree that this game really isn't that much of a Silent Hill game per se, I think there's a pretty okay video game experience underneath it all. So that was my number 8 guilty pleasure game. Let's check in with another listener and see what they had to say. Our next listener comment comes from Toonie Twirls over on our Instagram. She chimed in and said, I suppose the two Nintendo DS Zelda games? Never really considered them guilty pleasure games before, but since most Zelda fans rank them so low, I guess they count. They are some of my favorite Zelda games. I love their stories, characters, dungeons, and more. Now, if I recall correctly, we're talking about the Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks. I've not personally played these games yet, and I never really thought much about them since they never really come up all that much, but I do like what I see. The Phantom Hourglass sticks out for me personally, though. I like the idea that you can sail the seas, and I can just imagine that being so relaxing. I like the art style of both of these games as well, and there's just a charm here that seems very welcoming to old and new Zelda players alike. One of these days I'll give these games a go and see what it is that draws you to them. Thank you very much for writing into the show, Toonie Twirls. I really dig your Zelda, Luigi, and Resident Evil content on your Instagram. Definitely keep that up. Number 7 
Number seven on my top 10 list of guilty pleasure video games is Until Dawn for the PlayStation 4. For those that may not know, I am a sucker for scary video games. I love putting myself in a spooky, suspenseful situation and getting myself scared. It's an adrenaline rush that I can't quite get enough of. Some of you skydive or go bungee jumping. I immerse myself in scary video games. And while Until Dawn isn't really a bad video game per se, I cannot help but continue to find reasons to play it despite some of its flaws. So in case you've never heard of Until Dawn, it is an interactive, narrative-driven horror game. The whole premise is you take control of eight friends who reunite a year after the disappearance of two of their other friends. Things start to go wrong as the friends discover things that aren't quite what they seem, and there may be something out in the darkness that, I don't know, probably wants them dead. At its core, it's your classic teen slasher horror movie setup, but what makes the game so unique is the story can change based on the dialogue options and actions you take in the game. Something you do in the second chapter of the game can have ramifications for someone else several chapters later. But what always hooked me when I first heard about this game was the fact that any character you play as can potentially die at some point in the story depending on what you do or what you don't do. No character is safe, and you have the potential to end the game without anybody surviving. This obviously speaks to some incredible replay value, but more than that, I just love the idea that all it would take is just one decision to change the entire experience. The concept itself may not be as revolutionary nowadays, but to me, it really hooked me. Now, I hold the game up in pretty high regard, but I can also see some of the shortfalls. While the visual and audio presentations are top tier, controlling your characters can be an exercise in frustration. Movement can be clunky, and you can find yourself having a hard time doing something basic like interacting with objects or something in the environment. While I think the story in this game is pretty good overall, I argue that the writing sometimes can be eh, kind of so-so, and some of the dialogue is just campy as hell. And maybe that adds to the overall charm, but Until Dawn is far from a perfect experience. Still, though, I can't help but keep going back to it. I played this game through start to finish every Halloween season to the point where I finally got the Platinum Trophy. And of all the games I've ever played, I have always wanted to play this game with an audience. I dreamt of having friends over and we would all control a specific character and see if we could survive the horrors together. It's one of those games I wish I could forget and play again fresh. I just can't help but enjoy immersing myself in this world and trying to survive the dark horrors that await me within. Number 6 
Number six on my list of guilty pleasure video games is a sequel that I argue we really didn't need, but I am so glad we got. I am talking about Final Fantasy X-2 for the PlayStation 2. While I consider myself a pretty big fan of Final Fantasy in general, I know it's pretty clear that some of you diehards out there have huge loves for some specific games, and you have genuine disdain for some others. Personally, I rather enjoyed Final Fantasy X when I originally played it, and I argue it holds itself against some of the RPG greats out there. Since we're starting to talk about Final Fantasy X-2, I wanted to throw a comment out there really quick that we got from the Wildlands community. Curtis over on our Facebook page called out Final Fantasy X-2 as his guilty pleasure game as well. He wrote in and said, My biggest guilty pleasure game is one that we've talked about before, Final Fantasy X-2. It is not thought of as a good game but I really enjoy the combat and being able to switch job classes on the fly. For me, the gameplay and the music beat out the lackluster story. And all that said, Curtis, I have to agree on all counts. Now, while I agree that the story was certainly lacking in some spots, I kind of enjoyed it, at least parts of it anyway. But if I had to rank it, the music and the gameplay certainly trump the rest of those things and are really what sell 10-2 for me personally. It has a charm that just grabs you in the right way, and there's just something about this game that I can't quite let go of. Thank you very much for reaching out to the show as always, my friend. So jumping back to Final Fantasy X really fast. As an overarching game, I rather enjoyed the overall story, I thought the world was amazing to journey through, and I thought the gameplay was pretty exceptional. I even like playing Blitzball now and again, believe it or not. And while the characters in the original Final Fantasy X didn't quite make an impression on me like other games did, I still enjoyed the time I spent with Titus, Titus, whatever you want to call him, Yuna, Riku, and all the other Guardians. When the game itself ended, I thought the ending was very fitting and pretty final. I was pretty content overall and thought everything had come full circle and every character encountered had an arc that did them pretty decent justice overall. So when Final Fantasy X-2 came out and it starred an all-girl main cast, I was genuinely confused. The main reason for the confusion, though, is I just didn't really understand what other stories could be told in this universe. But it was a Final Fantasy game, and because of that, I knew I was going to play it. And all I have to say is I am damn glad that I gave this game a chance. So for those of you that have played 10-2, you probably already know why I consider this game to be a guilty pleasure. The gameplay and the battle system in this game is, in my opinion, one of the best out of all the other Final Fantasy games. Yes, I said it. The gameplay is just that good. The problem here is, I don't think too many people really give this game a chance and believe that it has something worth offering. The game itself stars Yuna and Riku from the first game and a new female protagonist named Pain. The overall presentation and the dialogue really gives off a Charlie's Angels sort of vibe, and while the concept itself works pretty well, it is a huge departure from the themes and tone of the original Final Fantasy X. The music was a lot more upbeat, the main characters changed their clothes mid-battle in order to change their abilities, and... 
on the outside and some places on the inside, this game was just all over the place. But once you start to play it, it had a charm about it that was very hard to turn away from. Now, speaking of the whole changing clothes thing, this was actually the best part of the whole gameplay experience. Now, get your perverted minds out of the gutter, it's not exactly how it sounds. The main characters use what are called dress fears to change jobs in the middle of combat. So, example, Yuna starts the game off as a gunner, using firearms and ranged combat as her methods of attack. However, if you find a black mage dress sphere, you can change into a black mage outfit and have nothing but black mage skills to use in combat. It allowed for some pretty strategic gameplay in real time and gave you many more tools to use in order to see yourself the victor in battle. Now, the addictive part of this game, at least for me, was gaining new abilities to max out each dress sphere. I would find myself just finding random battles in order to level up my characters and expand their abilities with each job class in order to increase my overall combat effectiveness. It was incredibly fun and extremely satisfying. So while Final Fantasy X II had its flaws and it certainly had some pretty cringeworthy moments, like a back massage minigame that had no place in this game in my opinion, X2 sports a gameplay experience that can satisfy any RPG fan and look pretty damn good in the process. And before we move on, speaking of Final Fantasy, Chris Copleen from the Retro Hangover podcast reached out to us over on our Twitter with his Guilty Pleasure game and said, Final Fantasy 2. I love it. And it gets a lot of hate, and I understand why, but that hate is wrong. Attacking yourself to buff your party is perfectly fine. Ask any Final Fantasy Tactics fan. And Chris, you are 100% correct. How many people have thrown stones at their friendly units and tactics just to get experience and job points? I am certainly one of those people. But overall, I do agree with your pick. I appreciate games that take a traditional premise and try something new. For those who haven't played Final Fantasy II before, your characters don't have traditional levels and level up by gaining experience. It's their stats that level up individually. Strength, magic, HP, MP. It's almost like a proficiency system. Attack in battle and your strength has a chance to go up. Use magic and you can gain more maximum magic points. I like the idea, but you're right, Chris. Haters are just gonna hate. <laughs> Thanks for writing into the show, my friend. I absolutely appreciate it. Number five.
My number five guilty pleasure game is The Division, and by extension, The Division 2. If there is any game that I have a hard time not playing, it's a looter shooter. I love playing games where loot is the primary focus. Killing enemies and accomplishing quests for items and equipment, slowly grinding until I get the one next best item that I'm looking for, or the thing I need to tweak my equipment. Just thinking about it gets me just a little bit excited. It's the gameplay loop that gives me the perfect amount of dopamine. Go on mission, kill bad guy, get loot, use loot to make characters stronger, repeat. Even when all the loot I get is useless, I still love collecting it and either selling it or disassembling it into resources. It is just satisfying in a way that I can't explain. Of all the games in this category, The Division is a looter shooter that hits all of these points perfectly for me. Now, truth be told, while I love this genre of game, I actually don't play very many of them, and the reason being is once I start one, I will never stop one. I'm not consistently playing games like Borderlands or Destiny, and I think a big reason for that is The Division gives me everything I need from the experience. Specifically, the realistic setting and the story. The whole idea that the world has gone to shit due to a viral outbreak is not all that far-fetched, and I like the idea that the government has clandestine agents hidden among the population that can take up arms to keep some semblance of order. I love this world so much, I got my hands on several book adaptations of the game, I purchased the Dark Zone edition for the sequel, and even my smartwatch has the iconic orange ring around the bezel. Oh, and to top it all off, this game has character customization, allowing me to make my own division agent from scratch. Granted, the customization options aren't all that robust, but I still love this option, and all of this together just encapsulate this amazing experience for me. So with all of that high praise out of the way, I will be the first to admit that The Division and its sequel are far from perfect games. Controls can be a bit stiff, and the gunplay can be pretty hit or miss sometimes. The game puts a ton of emphasis on weapon stats like damage, range, fire rate, armor, and all of that. So there'll be times where you're pumping several magazines of ammunition into your enemies before they go down because your weapon's not strong enough for the enemies that you're fighting. What's more, there's a player versus player zone called the Dark Zone that sounds pretty awesome from a narrative standpoint on the outside, but it can be very, very frustrating for some players depending on how competitive you're looking to be in this game. Personally, I am not smart enough to get myself to a high level of competitive play in this game, so the PvP aspect was a complete turnoff for me. But aside from that, while the story setup and the world building in this game sounds pretty remarkable, the game doesn't really expand too much into that. There are plenty of audio logs and text documents to listen to and read, but I would have liked a little bit more when it came to story immersion. It's like they set up the overarching themes and forgot to fill in a lot of the gaps. But all of that said, what always grabbed me about this game was that gameplay loop. That and the amazing soundtrack. I loved replaying the main missions, partaking in side quests, and exploring the city streets looking for a fight. Honestly, 
even after everything I've just said, I don't think I can really put into words how fulfilling this game was for me back then. While some people probably popped in Call of Duty and jumped online to wind down with some multiplayer matches after a long day at work, I would jump into The Division and do some looting and shooting in order to make my agent just a little bit more powerful so I could help maintain some civic order. Or maybe it's so I can prepare to go rogue and make my own destiny in the aftermath of society's collapse. Number 4 My number four guilty pleasure video game is a game that took a popular sci-fi survival horror franchise and turned it into a co-op action-adventure experience, much to the disdain of some of its hardcore fans. That's right, I am talking about Dead Space 3. If you've never played the original Dead Space before, I'd be willing to bet you've probably at least heard of it, even if you aren't a hardcore gamer. In the original Dead Space, you play as Isaac Clarke, a systems engineer who is with a crew looking for the USG Ishimura, an interstellar mining ship that has gone dark. A malfunction causes the ship that Isaac and his crew are on to crash into the Ishimura, but they survive and start their search for survivors. Isaac quickly figures out what became of the Ishimura's crew when he and his party are attacked by a swarm of necromorphs, the mutated and mutilated corpses of the USG Ishimura's crew. Making a mad dash to safety while being relentlessly pursued, Isaac begins a journey of survival, as he and the remaining survivors try desperately to stay alive when it seems like the entire ship that they're on wants them dead. As Isaac moves deeper into the depths of madness, he'll come to learn the origins of this strange threat and find out that the demons skulking around the ship are nothing compared to the demons worming their way into his mind. For a game that came out in 2011, over 10 years ago, Dead Space continues to be a masterclass in gaming. And while the remake came out at the end of January 2023, which improved upon this already amazing experience, the original Dead Space will forever stand on its own. While the gameplay is pretty extraordinary on its own, it's the tension and the atmosphere that are really the stars of the show. I've probably played through the original Dead Space at least a dozen times over the last 10 or so years, and it never fails to put me on edge. While I know what's coming up in the game, the sounds in the environment and just that foreboding atmosphere always make me clench up just a little bit. It is an amazing experience.
going back to the gameplay, Dead Space took what you think you knew about survival horror and turned it on its head. You can't rely on the normal tactics that you're used to, like shooting enemies in the head to conserve ammo, for instance. The only way to kill these creatures is by dismembering them. And since Isaac is an engineer with no actual combat experience, he uses engineering tools as his weapons, like plasma cutters, to battle the necromorphs. All of the pieces of the whole come together masterfully. Now, when Dead Space 3 came out, it took much of what the original did and, well, it just tossed it right out the window. The thick, intense atmosphere and the survival horror aspects of the game were replaced with a more action-heavy approach. While the graphical presentation was still present and the sprawling world that's been built was very much left intact, gone were the dark and foreboding corridors of a doomed ship or space station. They were replaced with large action set pieces and battles against firearm-wielding human enemies. There was also a co-op element that was added to the game so you and another person can take on all of this action together. Too bad you can't be in the same room as your friend, though. That's right. While Dead Space 3 has co-op, it doesn't have any local split-screen options, so that kind of sucked. Personally, I never really enjoyed playing with a random stranger online in games like this, and I would have much preferred playing with someone next to me, but whatever, we get what we get. And all of that said, on top of it all, I think the story in Dead Space 3 is probably the weakest out of all the other games. So with the third game in the series taking away much of what makes Dead Space so wonderful, what's left in this game that makes this game one of my guilty pleasure games? Dead Space 3 really excels when it comes to combat. And while there's a lot more combat in Dead Space 3, and I think both the first and the second games combined, it is really, really fun to me, I cannot deny it. When it comes to combat basics in the Dead Space series as a whole, you can't deny taking on necromorphs by dismembering them is fun on its own. The third game takes all of the best parts about combat and places them center stage. After playing through two full-length games that did a fantastic job of scaring the ever-living hell out of me, the third game was actually kind of a nice change of pace. I have a genuinely fun time holding my ground and piling up the bodies of my enemies at my feet, one severed arm or leg at a time. The fun that I get isn't from surviving the terrifying necromorph threat itself, it's taking the fight to them. I really enjoyed upgrading my weapons and finding the most powerful suits for Isaac to wear. Over time, I would become a killing machine, and then, when it was all said and done, there was New Game Plus mode that just kept the fun rolling on and on. Now, let me make it abundantly clear. I would have much rather had a more survival horror-centric game experience to play through. But if you can go into Dead Space 3 knowing what it is and what it's going to be, and embracing all of these flaws, there is a solid gameplay experience to be had here, and I think it is 100% okay to show this one just a little bit of love. Now speaking of something little to love, the Game Junction wrote into the show over on our Instagram page with their guilty pleasure game and said, Barbie horse riding on the Wii. And while I appreciate your comment, Game Junction, I can't tell if you're fucking with me or not. <laughs> Either way, it gave me a good laugh, and I certainly do not judge if Barbie horse riding is your thing. I mean, 
We all have that one game we love no matter what, am I right? And this next game for me is a perfect example. Number three. Number three on my list of guilty pleasure games is one that I am not sure very many of you have heard of. It's the third game in one of my favorite game franchises and one of my favorite PlayStation Portable games. Even though this game single-handedly killed off that series and completely destroyed one of my favorite video game characters of all time. I am talking about a little game called The Third Birthday. While it doesn't have it in the title anywhere, this game is the third game in the Parasite Eve franchise. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the Parasite Eve games, the first one is arguably the best of the three. It was an action role-playing game that had a very unique combat system and a very compelling story. It introduced Aya Brea, one of the coolest video game characters ever. She's a no-nonsense, headstrong gal whose bravery shines through in the most harrowing of situations. But there's also a kind-hearted, compassionate side of Aya that just makes her a very compelling character. The second game of the series, Parasite Eve 2, follows Aya as a creature hunter working for the FBI. She's hardened up a little bit by the experiences of the first game and uses her newfound abilities to continue to keep humanity safe by hunting down and killing as many mutated creatures that mean to do anyone harm. The second game relaxes the RPG elements just a little bit in favor of a more action-centric approach. Controlling Aya and taking her through battle is a completely different experience than it is in the first game. And while the formula was changed up pretty drastically in the sequel, I argue that the game is still a pretty solid experience through and through. The combat was fun, there's plenty of unlockable content, and all of that created some pretty good replay value. And the best part about Parasite Eve 2 for me was, I got to spend more time with Aya, and grow with her even more as a character. So fast forward 10 or so years after Parasite Eve 2. The third birthday was released on the PlayStation Portable at that point. Those of you who have completed the second game know that the story wraps up pretty damn tight and there really is not much room for a sequel. The developers, however, really wanted to continue Aya's story and introduce her to a brand new set of players. The PSP seemed like the best platform to create a new and visually stunning experience, so on December 22nd, 2010, the third birthday was born. This game is more or less a third-person shooter this time around. Now, I think I've actually been pretty good about the random profanity this whole episode, but this is the time in the episode I think I'm going to lose my cool a little bit. The third birthday isn't really a good game. But more than that, 
It consciously and blatantly disrespects and shits on the entire Parasite franchise, and more or less spits on Aya as a character. Aya, who has always been a strong woman and one to rush into danger instead of running away from it, is reduced to a weak and scared individual who is a mere shadow of her former self. She often speaks in whimpers and gasps, and any time she's in a cutscene, she looks so frightened and unsure of herself. It completely goes against everything we know of this character. Not only that, there's a battle mechanic where, when Aya takes too much damage, her clothes will start to rip away in a very obvious sexual fashion. Aya Brea has never been depicted as sexual or provocative, so this visualization doesn't really make any sense when it comes to the character as she was written up to this point. On top of all of that, the story as a whole is a complete and utter shitshow. It is by far the most convoluted, nonsensical narrative I have ever tried to understand. I have read multiple wiki articles and Reddit posts hoping to understand this story, and I still cannot get it. Hell, I don't think anybody understands this fucking story. And to compound on top of all of that, the gameplay itself can be pretty lackluster too. Enemies can hit you for some massive damage, so the difficulty can be very inconsistent. And what good gameplay features and ideas that this game does actually have They're all abandoned after the first mission is over. It's just, when you put it all together, this game is just not a fun game to play. It is the one video game that I think I am just most disappointed in. Well, most of the time, anyway. Given everything I just spouted off, why is this game one of my guilty pleasures? Well, if it's not been made abundantly clear, I absolutely love the Parasite E franchise. I think it's one of the most unique ones out there. And every now and then, the third birthday does call back to the original games and gives us some glimpses of what this game could and should have been. When I look at the presentation in this game, I can confidently say it is pretty amazing. Aya's sexualization aside, CGI cutscenes look masterful, in-game effects look stunning, and this game runs silky smooth. For a PlayStation Portable game, I argue this is one of the best-looking games on the system, and one of the best-looking PlayStation games of that era. As far as the actual gameplay experience goes, battling enemies in real-time can be kind of fun sometimes. When there's multiple enemies on screen, and you're dodging attacks by rolling out of the way, and running and gunning your way to victory, it is hard not to enjoy it sometimes. Plus, in some of the earlier missions, you can hear music from the original games remixed in this game, and it really makes it feel like an actual Parasite Eve game, even for just a minute. In these kind of moments, when I'm controlling Aya and she's being a complete badass, I can pretend that this is the game that I always wanted it to be. And while I'm not saying the gameplay is great in this game, it does give me just a little bit of enjoyment. Now maybe I'm just fooling myself, it is very possible, but I can't help but pop this game in from time to time and enjoy the couple parts of the game that were actually fun for me. 
It's to a point when I decided to collect for the PlayStation Portable, I got my hands on a factory sealed copy of this game for my collection. I know, I can't explain it either. But The Third Birthday is a game that I know I should hate with all of my being, but I cannot help but want to play it. Number 2 Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City is number two on my list of guilty pleasure video games. Those of you newer to the podcast may not know this, but I am a huge Resident Evil fan. The original Resident Evil was the video game that had the biggest impact on me when I was younger, and it helped propel me into this gaming lifestyle that I enjoy today. As of the recording of this podcast episode, I have played pretty much every Resident Evil out there, save one or two obscure ones. I love the franchise, and I cannot get enough of it. Now, it is no secret that not every Resident Evil game out there is a banger, but I love the Resident Evil universe, and I generally try to get my hands on any game in the series if I'm able to. But of all the Resident Evil games that are out and about nowadays, there is something about Operation Raccoon City that just continues to mesmerize me. Before this game was released in 2012, I was extremely hyped for its launch. The whole concept would give me as the player a brand new experience and perspective on the story. Operation Raccoon City is a third-person squad-based shooter where you take control of a member of the USS, the Umbrella Security Service. You, along with three other squad mates, would work together to see yourself through the zombie outbreak that occurs in Raccoon City during the events of the second and third mainline games in the series. But it's not just a tale of survival. You're playing as the bad guys, and your mission is to try and help Umbrella cover up their involvement in the outbreak. I mean, stop and let that sink in. Even if you aren't a huge Resident Evil fan, the idea that you're playing as the villain is pretty exciting. But for someone like myself, this opened up so many story-related doors. I'd get to see a new perspective on some iconic events. I remember watching some game trailers and showcases obsessively back before this game launched. I'd show my friends or anybody who would watch what this game was shaping up to be. I even purchased the special edition of the game on my Xbox 360, which came with a steelbook, download codes for extra weapons and costumes, and a couple of unit patches symbolizing the Umbrella Security Service and a US Special Ops unit. I was all in. 
Oh, and the best part about this game that really got me excited was the inclusion of an infection mechanic. Now, Resident Evil is all about the viruses that create the creatures that we fight, and it's those viruses that are the true enemies in this series and should be feared. Out of all the games in the Resident Evil universe, Resident Evil Outbreak and Outbreak File 2 were the only games at the time that actually threatened the player with actual infection. Operation Raccoon City would allow your characters to become infected if bitten, and the whole idea just sounded awesome. And then the game came out, and it was not nearly as good as I was hoping. The game itself was pretty void of an involved story. While we were playing the bad guys' cleanup crew, we didn't really get to learn anything new that we didn't already know about Umbrella or their evil deeds, which was a huge letdown for me. There were some cameo appearances from series regulars like Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield, but it all seemed stuffed in at the last minute. The game gives you the option to kill our heroes at the end, but even this idea wasn't really done in such a way that made it feel substantial or weighty. It was just press one button and see this ending, press this other button and see that ending. As far as the gameplay itself goes, it was pretty average overall as well. Now, an average game isn't really a bad game per se, but since this game was advertised as a squad-based shooter and developed by Slant 6 Games, the team behind some of the older SOCOM games, I was expecting a tighter experience. Each member of the USS had a speciality like Assault, Recon, and Medic, but I never felt like these roles stood out on their own in such a way that they really influenced the gameplay all that much. Even that infection mechanic that I was so looking forward to didn't really add any actual weight to the gameplay or influence any on-the-fly decisions. It was all just overhyped, and I fell for all of it. But what makes this game such a guilty pleasure for me? It has to be the gameplay. Tearing through the streets of Raccoon City and shooting up hordes of zombies is pretty fun in this game, all things considered. I never felt like the multitude of weapons added to the experience much, and the hit detection in this game was pretty awful, but mowing down zombie after zombie, throwing in a close quarters knife takedown in the middle of it all, was very satisfying to me, even if landing a headshot was an exercise in frustration. You'll come across members of the US military and get into firefights with them, but if you can shoot them in the gut and cause them to bleed, it will attract the undead in that area and cause them to overwhelm your opponent and take them down. It's a very simple mechanic that just seemed to work exceptionally well, especially when you needed that one thing to turn the tide of battle in your favor. You also have the ability to quick draw your handgun and put a few quick rounds into enemies that might be getting a little too close. It's a great tactic if you need to reload your main weapon and you don't have enough time to do it. If I didn't mention it before, this game also lets you utilize cover like barricades and walls, so you can pop in and out when firing your weapons. It's all here. Everything you'd ever want this game to have in order to be a competent squad-based shooter, but it's all just done very average. But in spite of all of this, I can't help but enjoy this game anytime I play it. It's like, I know this game is mediocre, 
and it's because I embrace its shortfalls that I'm able to look past what this game is now, and I look to what this game could have been. Oh, and the visual presentation is pretty damn good in this game, too. Environments look fantastic, especially the desolate city streets. Character models look pretty damn good, too, especially the main characters. Their detail is done up really well, and they look pretty good. The umbrella-themed main menus and the music just complete the overall presentation, and it all feels genuinely evil and really added to the overall atmosphere. But all of that said, when a horde of the undead is descending on my position and all hope seems lost, I always get a little smirk on my face as I carve a path through all of them. And when the battle is over and my enemies are sprawled out at my feet, I can't help but feel like a complete badass. Before we get to my number one, Squidge from the Waffling Tailors podcast wrote into the show on our Twitter page, and he'll have the last word. He wanted to call out some games, and he said, Final Fantasy X-2, Yakuza, Dead Souls, Skyrim, I still don't know why to this day, Pokemon Fire Red, Resident Evil 2 on the PlayStation 1, all require strategy, but they are just comfy games for me that I go back to every few months at least. These are all solid picks, Squidge, to be sure, and other than Final Fantasy X-2, because we've already talked about it, Resident Evil 2 caught my eye. While I don't think Resident Evil 2 is a guilty pleasure game, at least the way I described it, I absolutely think it is a warm bowl of comfort food, to be sure. While it's a survival horror game and meant to scare and terrorize you, there is just something warm and comforting about finding refuge in the Raccoon City Police Department and Skyrim. I can't count how many times I would jump on after a long day at work and I would just go wandering in this game. Like, I wouldn't even do any quests. I would just shut my brain off and go explore and see what I could find. You cannot put a price on these sorts of things. That is for damn sure. Thank you for writing into the show, Squidge. Good to hear from you, my friend. And now, the moment we have all been waiting for. Number My number one guilty pleasure game is the black sheep of the entire Resident Evil series, the game that critics called inconsistent, bloated, and nothing short of a flaming roller coaster ride. The game that took the series' survival horror roots and tossed them out the window in favor of non-stop action set pieces. Yes, my number one guilty pleasure is Resident Evil 6. Alright, so right off the bat, I am very aware why a lot of Resident Evil diehards do not care for this game. 
Resident Evil 6 tried to take what made Resident Evil 4 such a masterpiece and added way too much of that into this recipe. It tried to do way too much. It tried to be something too grand, and all of that was ultimately its undoing in the eyes of many a gamer. Resident Evil 6 featured four fully playable campaigns where you could play as several different characters. Leon Kennedy, Chris Redfield, Ada Wong, and Jake Mueller, series newbie. Each character had a partner that came along for the ride as well. Each campaign would intersect with each other, creating story crossroads, and only until you played all four scenarios did you fully get the massive story that was crammed into this game. Now on the surface, that sounds amazing. And I was completely sold on the idea when the game first launched. Speaking of, this was one of the only games that I actually went to GameStop and picked up at midnight on the day it was released. But ultimately, after this game was released, critics and fans slammed this game. More than anything, this game was touted as being a Resident Evil game by name alone. There were no survival horror elements or any sort of tension. This game was purely an action-based shooter, and that was it. But you know what? I loved this game, and I still love it today. This game, when you really look at it, has everything. When you play, you can find and collect skill points that you can use to purchase and upgrade skills to put on your characters like increased attack power, higher critical hit chances, or faster reloading. Mixing skills up would actually change how you played the game. On top of all that, there were tons of in-game rewards to grab. Kill X amount of enemies, beat a level without a certain weapon, don't grab any health items, things like that. Accomplishing some feats would unlock titles that you could display on your profile for the world to see. And remember when I mentioned the story crossroads? It never really worked for me, but when you played the game online, if another player got to a point in their story and it intersected where you were at in your story, you could play that segment with that other player online in real time. It was a completely needless feature and relied so much on happenstance to work, but when it did, it was awesome. So say what you will about this game, but Capcom really went all in on this one and tried to create a bombastic over-the-top experience. But even with all of that said, for me, more than anything, I think this game is just a blast to play. And trust me, I would have much preferred a more slow-paced survival horror-centric game, but this game is just fun. Action in this game is pretty seamless, and your characters are afforded a decent amount of movement. Gunplay is snappy and accurate, setting up combos with your partner is pretty enjoyable, and wiping out enemies to collect items and more skill points is just a great gameplay loop. And when it comes to the actual combat experience in this game, I absolutely enjoyed it, and I would find myself going out of my way to find enemies to battle. For me, the most fun I would have is using my mobility and pulling off some pretty awesome John Woo-type stunts. You see, in Resident Evil 5, you had to stand still while you were aiming and shooting. In Resident Evil 6, you now had free range of movement while you aimed and fired your weapons. Plus, you have the ability to dodge in all four directions. 
There was nothing more satisfying to me than dodge rolling to the side, just as a thrown object sailed past me, and as soon as I hit the ground, I would open fire on the creature that threw it. It was just a magical experience. I don't know how else to describe it. Sure, the story can be a little nonsensical at times, but if you go into this game understanding that, it makes this entire experience that much more enjoyable. I loved playing as characters that I've grown up with and just having a fantastic time shooting the shit out of anything that moved. And again, I get it. I completely understand all of the disdain and hate that this game gets from hardcore Resident Evil fans, but you cannot tell me this is a bad video game. It's just not the video game people wanted. But aside from all of that, I just can't help it. I love this game. I have so much fun playing it. I have so much fun playing it to the point where I even got the platinum trophies for the PlayStation 3 and PlayStation 4 versions, and I got a thousand gamer score for the Xbox 360 and Xbox One versions. I might even own this game on the Switch now that we're talking about it. I am just proud to say that this game is my number one guilty pleasure game. You cannot convince me that this is a bad game, because at the end of the day, why do we play video games? We play to have a good time, and we play to have fun. And no other game brings me this much mindless fun than Resident Evil 6. that, we've come to the end of episode 34 of the Retro Wildlands, my top 10 guilty pleasure video games. The video games I probably shouldn't like as much as I do, but I do anyway. Thank you very much for listening to the show today. It's always a pleasure having you with us anytime we share stories around the campfire. I had a really good time thinking through this list of games, and while I sort of wish I had some more older games on it, I think I made a pretty good argument for the ones that did land here. Sometimes the heart wants what it wants, and when it comes to video games, I say we follow our hearts and enjoy the things that make us happy. Even if there's people out there that say otherwise. Life is too short, Wildlanders. Play what brings you joy. If you like the show and want to show it and myself some support, please consider leaving us a good review on your podcasting platform if you're able to. Good reviews should help circulate the podcast around and help it pop up on more search feeds, but if nothing else, a good review will make me feel pretty damn good, so if you have the time to spare, I would absolutely appreciate it. 
And if you really like what we're doing here, please tell a friend. The Retro Wildlands are also on social media if you want to check us out. We have a presence on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even on the old YouTubes if you search at Retro Wildlands. You can interact with the show over there and even message me directly from those platforms if you want to get in touch with me or just shoot the shit a little bit. I do my best to stay on top of comments and messages pretty regularly, so head on over there if that's something that might interest you. Oh, and don't forget, I do put call-outs for comments to be read on the show, so if you want to get involved with the show directly, that's how you do it. Or, if nothing else, throw us a follow on social media so I can spice up your timelines and feeds with some good old-fashioned video game goodness and pop culture greatness. So, what's coming up next? Recently, I busted out my Super Nintendo Classic, and I'm playing a few games over on it based on some of your recommendations. I'm still a little up in the air as far as what game is going to be next on the show, but I will say it's going to be a game that you can find on that system, that is for sure. I love the Super Nintendo Classic, and the Super Nintendo itself continues to be one of my favorite retro consoles. Very rarely do I find a game on it that I don't like, so you can expect something good next time you and I get together. And don't forget, if you're listening to this right now, yes, I'm talking to you, you are now officially a part of our Wildlands expedition, and you are welcome back anytime we venture into the Wildlands. So that said, I hope I get to hang out with you next time, and I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me... Roaming the Retro Wildlands. <laughs>